I'd love for you to get your Bibles and uh, open back to the book of John. We've been spending a lot of time in John over the past three weeks talking about what it meant for the light to come, for light to dwell with us, for God to dwell with us. You know, we um, talked about it last week, how the scripture says that Jesus is the true light who when coming into the world enlightens every man, enlightens every human. Every person is enlightened by the presence of God and what it means to live in light, what it means to follow that light. When Isaiah paints a picture in Isaiah chapter 8, he paints a picture of the darkness that the world is in. It's, it's bleak, it's grim, um, it's, it's not even the Gentiles that he's talking about. It's God's people who have fallen into darkness, consulted other spirits, consulted other sources, and not looked to their own God. And, and the further they get from God, the darker it gets, but the more they blame God for it. And at the end of Isaiah 8, they're cursing God, and then they look to the earth, and they can't find any answers, and they get darker and darker. But Isaiah 9 starts beautifully, because Isaiah 8 ends with, they'll fall further into darkness and gloom and despair, and Isaiah 9 starts with the proclamation, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in in distress, and he begins to talk about the dark land, this place where people are living in darkness, where, where they are in the shadow of death, and he says light will visit them. Sunrise from on high will dawn on them. Something's gonna change. He says the dark, the, the ghetto, the, the, the deserted places, the place where nobody thinks this is anything special. Nobody gives it any credit. This place that nobody wants to live. He says he's going to make it glorious. He says that place that he was going to make glorious was Galilee. Galilee was not the kind of place you expect a king to come from. But it's where Jesus sets his feet. It's where he begins and bases his ministry. He didn't base it in the palace. He didn't base it in the most important cities. He spoke in this place that that everybody said, that's, you know, could anything good come out of that area? Could anything good come out of that place? And the Bible says, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, it says that Jesus, it said the Messiah, the, the chosen one, would walk in that place and make it glorious. What does it mean for a place to be made glorious? What does it mean for a community to be made glorious? What made Galilee glorious? It wasn't the water. It wasn't the wildlife. It wasn't the beautiful scenery. Galilee was a place that people might have called God forsaken at certain times in history. It even says, it kind of implies that in scripture. What made that place glorious was the presence of Jesus. And as Jesus walked through that place healing the sick, Raising the dead, opening the eyes of the blind, delivering the oppressed, preaching the good news to the poor. As he began to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, the first time we see it, we see him walking in the gospels into this area. And it says, this fulfilled the prophecy hundreds of years before that he would go to Galilee, that he would go to this place that where the, the darkness, the people sat in darkness and, and the shadow of death. This was fulfilling that prophecy. And the first thing he says when he gets there is repent and believe the good news. And he preaches good news to these people. John 
Starts out in John 1 with the beginning of everything. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He shows us that Jesus was not simply a man who came into something. He's existed. Before anything else existed, he's existed. That in fact the world was created through him, by him, for him. He says, in him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. Another translation says the darkness could not overpower it. He goes on and he says in uh, John 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt among us, that, that, that phrase is often translated and it would have been understood by the original readers as the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, set up his tent amongst us. We've read in uh, Revelation as we were going through Revelation on Wednesday night how uh, the announcement is made that God is going to set up his tabernacle amongst men. Brother Lee sent me a great article to, uh, this last week, which was so cool, the timing, because it was exactly the kind of thing I, I was meditating on and, and thinking about this week. And it was a brilliant article by a theologian named N.T. Wright. And he wrote about uh, uh, Jesus dwelling amongst us, uh, the word becoming flesh, the word taking on human form. But he brought out something I hadn't heard before, which was he tied it to the book of Exodus, I know when we talk about Christmas, we don't talk about Exodus too much. We don't talk about Moses and Pharaoh and the big bad Egyptians. But there was a point that he made that really stuck with me. In that, do you remember, I don't know, some of you may not know the story too well. Some of you may know the story really well. But when the Israelites were stuck in Egypt in bondage, and Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Well, we, we, we famously think Moses said it, but turns out Moses was a chicken, so he made his brother say it. And his brother said, Moses says, let my people go. Moses says, God says, let my people go. <laughs> Thankfully, not like the game of telephone, nothing got lost in translation. <laughs> See, stand before Pharaoh, let my people go. There's a phrase, there's something that they ask for. The first time they ask, they say, let us go out into the desert they may, that we may worship God. And uh, Brother Wright made the similar, uh, he made the point that I've always thought, which was, we've just always, I always assumed that was just a ruse. It was just something you said to let him get out of there. Like, hey, we're just going to go to the desert for a while. We're just going to worship God. So, you know, no big deal. It's not like we're trying to escape or anything. It's not like we're going to a promised land. But we just want to go out the desert and worship God. I always thought they were just kind of lying to Pharaoh. But he makes the point that that really doesn't jive because Truly, they were going into the desert to worship God. And all through the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, that's, that's good storytelling. That's exciting stuff. But you start to get bogged down. You, you start to get the, around chapter 20. You start to get kind of uh, sluggish through it. But then he builds and builds and builds to the point where the tabernacle is built. And we've talked about this before, but... God actually made the Israelites go door to door to their Egyptian masters and say, hey, you've got any acacia wood? Yeah, we got acacia. Give it to me. You got gold, silver? Give it to me. Not only did they leave Egypt, but the Bible says they plundered Egypt. And I know most of you would not feel comfortable with those conversations. <laughs> We're all good 
delivering baked goods to our neighbors, how would you like to have to go to your old masters, your old bosses who treated you poorly? You're finally getting out. They finally let you go. And then God says, no, you have to go back and ask them for all their stuff. (laughs) Knock on the door. Do you have any porpoise skins? Because that was one of the things they had to ask for was porpoise skins. You got any dolphin? Got anything like that? And they (laughs) took this stuff and they plundered the Egyptians. And they may have thought, what good is gold going to do us in the wilderness? What good is acacia going to do us in the wilderness? What good are porpoise skins in the wilderness? But they find out, God says, now I want you to build me a tabernacle. And all the gold and the silver that they took from the Egyptians, all the stuff that they took and they didn't know why they had it. You know, the Bible says God told them, put this on your kids. Make your kids wear this stuff. Can you imagine a tribe of nomadic people wandering through the wilderness and their kids are just wearing like really like just chunky bling walking around. (laughs) Got the gold rings, got the ice, you know, the walking around the desert. Fancy porpoise skin sandals, you know. Can you imagine if you're one of those, those nations, those tribes? Like, who do these people think they are? But it all became apparent when God said, now it's time to build me a tabernacle. Now it's time to build me a place. And you see, growing up, I always thought that that place was more for God than for anybody else. Let's, let's honor God by building him a, a, a tent. Let's honor him by building him a really cool base. But you know, God's already got a really cool base. I don't think he's just sitting up there going, man, you know what I need? A tent. This is glorious. Streets of gold. Gate like a giant pearl. Crystal seas. But you know what I could really use is an awesome tent that's mobile that we could pack up and set up again. Do you think that's what God needed? God didn't need it for him. Why was that tabernacle so important? Because God wanted to be amongst his people. That's why it mattered. Everything led up to the tabernacle. You know, sometimes we're reading those rules and regulations of what the priests had to do, how they had to wash, we wash their hands and, and sprinkle this and sprinkle that. And God, why'd you make them go through all these steps? Because he wanted them to experience the pureness of his holiness. And if they had experienced it without the ritual, in the old covenant, without Jesus' blood, they would have died. All of it was worth it to be in the presence of God. We've talked about this before, but if you were at the tabernacle and you weren't an Israelite, you couldn't even go very far. You could look in, you kind of peek in. If you were an Israelite, you could go to this outer court area. But if you weren't a priest, you couldn't go any further. The priests could go further into an inner court. But only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and only once a year could he go into the Holy of Holies for atonement? Only one, the day of atonement was the only day he could go all the way in. One guy, once a year, could go into the full, you know, presence, throne room of God. And now Hebrews tells us Jesus Christ has made a living, new and living way into that presence of God, into that holy place, into the Holy of Holies, into the place where God's presence lives. And here we are, Saying, yeah, but I don't want to turn my cell phone off for half an hour. Can you imagine how jealous you might have been? You might have been as an Israelite just sitting outside 
of the tabernacle going, man, I wish I could see what's in there. Man, I wish I could experience the presence of God. Even Moses and Joshua going into the tent of meeting and Joshua would just hang out. He would just stay there. The meeting was over. The service was done and Joshua would hang out because he just wanted that sense of the presence of God. And now, as believers in the new covenant, now as people who've received Jesus, we get to experience that all the time. He says here, the word became flesh and it lived among us. It lived among us. And we saw his glory. I want you to just focus on that phrase for a minute. Number one, focus on that the word became flesh and lived amongst us. Jesus set up his tent with us. Jesus stayed with us. Jesus put on our skin. The word incarnation is is probably not a word uh, that we use too much outside of church. I mean, you might hear someone say reincarnation, but the word incarnation just simply means in flesh. Somebody came in flesh, in meat. He came in skin and bones so that he could take on our humanity so that he could bear our, not only bear our sins on the cross, but also that he could show us God. And then I want you to just focus on this phrase for a minute. We saw his glory. John makes a big point of the fact that we actually saw his glory. We got to look at it. We got to behold it. We got to stare at it. In 1 John 1, this is another letter that he wrote. I want to read you something real quick from the... This is how he opens his first letter, his first epistles to the church. He says, what was from the beginning, what we've heard and what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifested and we've seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with us, which was with the Father and was manifested or uncovered or revealed to us What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. You know, John doesn't say, listen, we've got, you know, we've got some theories about life. He doesn't say, we've come up with a good philosophy. He doesn't say, I've got a great sermon for you. He says, I'm going to tell you about what I got to see with my eyes. I'm going to explain to you what we got to touch with our hands. He said, this life that we experienced, it wasn't some abstract thing. We got to touch it. We got to handle it. We saw it. We touched it. We lived with it. For three years, this man, John, was one of the disciples who got to live with Jesus, who got to experience every day with Jesus. And when we have the pictures of Jesus as a nice, long-haired shepherd holding sheep, Every moment with Jesus just seems surreal and and holy and special. But you know, Jesus took on our humanity. He had to go to the bathroom. He had to sleep. He, you know, he had to live the life we lived. And so there's something about living every day with Jesus and discovering that it wasn't about just these major miracle moments. Every day they got to see the glory of God in common flesh. And John says, I'm just going to write a letter telling you what we got to see, what we got to touch, what we got to handle, and that was the word of life. And if you read the rest of the letter, what does he talk about the whole time? The love of God. John says this, he says, we, we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. 
He said that love was made manifest to us and has been uncovered in us. And now we have that love. I had a, last week we made a statement and I hope you remembered it. Because I really believe this is where we're at as a society. In a, in a place where people aren't looking necessarily to the Bible for answers because they don't know that's where the answers are. They're not looking to Jesus as the way. They're looking to Jesus as maybe one of many ways or in many cases not a way at all. And in such a society, it's not enough to preach well. It's not enough to have a good book. It's not enough to have a good philosophy about life. It's not enough to have a good social setting where people could come and feel accepted for a while. That alone is not enough. We've got to move, like we said last week, from the place of saying, how can I believe this gospel? To the place where we are saying, how could I deny this gospel? And the reason the disciples could never deny what they experienced. When faced with death, when faced with torture, when faced with prison, the reason they never denied it was because they experienced it, they lived it, they saw the risen Savior. He was not a rumor to them. They saw him. And you might say, well, what about a man like Paul? Paul wasn't there when Jesus was resurrected. He didn't, he didn't get to touch his hands and, and feel his feet and feel the holes. How did Paul know that Jesus was real? Paul seems to describe, now, of course, we know Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He had a vision, but that vision certainly wasn't as real <laughs> As, you know, in many people's eyes, as, as, as Jesus showing up when you're having supper or showing up on the shore and cooking breakfast for you like he did for the disciples. But to Paul, it was just as real. He said, I met Jesus. He appeared to me. I saw him. Well, what about the second generation? What about guys like Timothy? What about guys like, like Titus who weren't there, who just heard the stories? I guarantee if you got Timothy, and I'll tell you how Timothy died. He died as an old man on the streets of Ephesus yelling at the pagans for their stupid parade. They were having a parade that was debauched and it was vulgar and it was vile. And he went out there and said, you guys need to stop this. You shouldn't be doing this. And the people of Ephesus, they admired this guy. He was a nice old man. They bought fruit from them. They liked him. So they said, shh, stop, stop, stop. Because they knew what he was doing was illegal by speaking up against it. So they stopped, stop, Timothy, stop. Stop, just settle down, old man. Just, shh, come on. He's, he's crazy. He hasn't had his vitamins. Come on, we just need to take him away. <laughs> he just kept yelling till they finally just had to shut him up. They finally just beat him over the head. Now, that's not a very nice story, but it tells you something. The second generation was just as convinced about the resurrection of Jesus as the first. And the reason they were so convinced... The reason they could be just as convinced that Jesus was alive was because they too had experienced a living Savior. And you say, well, they weren't there when Jesus showed up. They weren't there when he made them fish on the shore. They weren't there when he said, touch my hands and feel the holes. They weren't there, so how did they know? They knew the same way you and me know. We didn't just hear a good message. We've met Jesus. We've experienced his life. We have handled the word of truth and the word of life. We've beheld his glory. We've seen it with our own eyes. 
I don't know, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I really haven't. But it is a promise. One of the promises that God made in the latter part of Isaiah, he once again talks about a land of darkness. He says, we walk around in pure darkness and gloom. We don't know where we're going. He says, we're looking around and we have no answers. We're struggling to find light. Then he says, so when God looked around and saw that no one could bring justice, he did it himself. He raised up his right arm. And then he begins to describe what Jesus the Redeemer would do. And that chapter ends with this promise. And this is my covenant that I make with them, my people. They will have my spirit in them. They will have my words in their mouth. And I will not depart from them. My law will not be just on paper, on, on, on stones. It will be written on their heart. My word will be in their mouth and my spirit will live in them. God promised way before Jesus ever showed up. He kept saying things like, here's my covenant with you. I will live among you. I will be a father to you and you'll be kids to me. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. You see, when we talk about the incarnation, we talk about God becoming flesh. We often just talk about the time that Jesus was walking the earth. But I want to tell you, Jesus walking the earth was the beginning of the incarnation. But there hasn't been an end yet. He's still walking the earth. And here we are. We get to behold his glory. And so, you know, I started talking about where our society's at. I've got great hope. I've got great hope because God has not left the scene. That's why you and me are here. That's why Jesus had to pray. Lord, don't, uh, Father, I don't ask that you take them away from the world. I'm not asking you to rapture them right away. I'm not asking you to hide them in the mountains. I'm not asking you to let them start their own colony. I am asking that you keep them from the evil one. But they've got to be there. Jesus told a parable about, we, we know the parable about the sower that sows the word. But he told another parable about another sower. And he explained it this way. He said, the sower is the father and the seeds that he's sown. He said, the field is the world and the seeds that he's sown are the sons of the kingdom. You think about that. God calls you his seed. He calls the field, the world his field. And he's taking you and you go, well, he hadn't taken me. I don't do anything really. I work at Radio Shack and that doesn't even exist anymore. I don't know what my point is. I don't know what my purpose is. You know, he didn't say he took the preachers and sowed them in the world. He didn't say he took the book writers. He didn't say he took the musicians. He said he took the sons and daughters of the kingdom. And he sowed them in the world. You know, listen, if the field was just this little place that we meet together, and this was the only place that ministry happened right here, God wouldn't have much of a harvest. This is not his field. That's his field. And there's a reason you work at the store you work at. There's a reason you work on the rig you work at. There's a reason you go to the school you go to. It's because God sowed his seeds into the world. And he always gets harvest. Because he's the Lord of the harvest. You see, God has still come in flesh. I want you to see this point here. He says this. We saw his glory the glory as of the only begotten or uniquely begotten from the Father, full 
of grace and truth. Thank God that Jesus came full. Hey? Not a little bit, but full. John testified about him and cried out saying, this, is a he, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness... Listen, he says Jesus came full of grace. He came full of truth. He came full of everything that God was. And of his fullness, we have all received. Of his fullness, we have all received. He's talking to believers, guys. He's saying all those that have believed on his name. Of his fullness, we all received it. And grace upon grace... And he says this. Thank God. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, but the only uniquely begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he explained him. Jesus showed us what God looked like. And this is the testimony of John. And he tells the story of John uh, 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 proclaiming, they say, who are you? He's, are you Elijah? He says, no, but I'm the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And while we do have a mission to be like John sometimes and say, prepare the way of the Lord, I want to tell you that Jesus said, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. He said, John was the greatest prophet that ever set foot on the planet up until this point. But he said, now, the very least in my kingdom will be greater than John. That's a powerful thought. Look at what he said. He said, of his fullness, we've all received. We've received of the fullness of God. Because God wants a witness on the earth. God doesn't want people to hear about the glory of God. He wants people to experience his glory. To see it, to behold it. And in a day and age where we have a million philosophies and, and in seconds, in seconds you can type it into your browser and, and, and hear from any source you want. We've got to remember and come back to the point that we are not just a philosophy. We're not just a social club. We're not just a, a place where we get together and sing songs. We are the people of God with whom the presence of God goes where we go. And the only way the world's going to say, how can I deny this? How could I ever deny this? Is if they experience God in the flesh. You and me, we're not Jesus. He's always going to be King of kings and Lord of lords. But we have received his spirit. We carry Jesus wherever we go. I don't believe that this gospel is all emotional or experiential. I don't believe it's just about the goosebumps you got on a Sunday morning when they sang that one song and the lights were dim. <laughs> We've said this before, but if that were proof of the anointing, that Disney would be the most anointed place on the planet. <laughs> they can give you the goosebumps too. This is not about emotion. It's not about goosebumps. But it's about the fact that we are not just preaching. Follow this doctrine. Follow this set of rules. Follow this way of living and life will be a little bit better. We are preaching that God wants to fill you with himself. 
That he wants to live among you. That, that he wants you to not just see his spirit or experience his spirit, but be filled with his spirit. I want to read you something that just pumps me up from the book of Ephesians. And you Bible nerds will say, well, what verse in the book of Ephesians doesn't pump you up? <laughs> and I know if you said that, you're a teacher's pet, and I appreciate you. <laughs> and you're going to get an extra Christmas card. I don't make any promises. I'm sorry. I didn't say it was for me. I got to be careful what I say. Everything's being recorded. I can't just promise gifts and things like that, right? Of his fullness, we've all received. Just thinking about that for a minute, it makes me stop and realize that I often... I often limit God with my own expectations. I often think that these are the ways he can show up and these are the ways he can move and these are the ways he's going to show his power. Um, But he's able and willing and desiring to do exceedingly abundantly more than I've ever asked or thought. In Ephesians chapter 3, read this with me. Now the problem with reading anything in the book of Ephesians is you, you want to start from, I always am tempted just to start reading from 1-1, Ephesians 1-1, and give you the context to go through. It doesn't feel like a really good book to cherry pick, so I'm going to give you the homework of go home and read the rest of it. But Ephesians 3 says this, for this reason, in verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Remember, we saw his glory. He says, there are, the, his glory is not limited. His glory is not finite. finite. His glory is, is limitless. And so he says, he's going to grant you out of the riches of his glory. So I'm paying attention already because something's coming out of his giant treasure chest. The riches of his glory. I want to know what it is. Here's what, he's, here's what Paul is praying that, that would be granted to them. That according to the riches of his glory, you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner person. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Think about that. Jesus changed everything. On Wednesday nights, we've been doing a series called The Christmas Prophecies. And... While a lot of times we talk about the prophecies that happened hundreds of years before Jesus, Isaiah, even Genesis, uh, all these prophecies about the Messiah that would come, we spent some time these last three Wednesday nights talking about the prophecies that happened as Jesus was born. Uh, first of all, when he was just in his mother's womb, uh, um, you know, the, well, in fact, I'm sorry, before he was in his mother's womb, when, when uh, the angel said, you're going to have a child, and Mary broke out in a, in a uh, prophetic a declaration of what God was doing, in a, a song of gratitude and thanksgiving. And, and then uh, we talked about how Simeon uh, met Jesus, and, and, and uh, just as a baby, he's holding this baby in his arms, he, he prophesied, this is, what would, this is what this kid's gonna do. This is what this salvation is going to mean. 
16, we talked about how Zechariah prophesied over his son John that John would prepare the way for Jesus and that Jesus would be that sunrise from on high that would visit us and, and, and shine on us who are in the shadow of death and darkness and would guide our feet into the way of peace. But the point I'm making is, is that in all of these instances, it seems like whenever somebody got just in the vicinity of Jesus, even when he was just in his mom's womb, the baby in another womb leapt for joy, was filled with the Spirit. Simeon was filled with the Spirit and prophesied. Zechariah was filled with the Spirit and prophesied. Like the, the presence of Jesus changes everything. Things are just lit on fire. The spirit of God is all over the place. Stuff is happening. And when you see Jesus grow up, even before he starts his ministry, when he's in the temple as a 12-year-old, he is amazing, the teachers in the synagogue. He's amazing, the educated people. Jesus, this presence is changing everything, but it really begins after that baptism in the Jordan and the Holy Spirit comes upon him and rests and remains on him. And he goes into the wilderness and he fights the devil and he comes out full of the Spirit. And you see that ministry where everywhere he went, things were made glorious. Everywhere he went, demons fled. Everywhere he went, resurrection went with him. He said to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. I bring it with me wherever I go. I am the resurrection. I don't just do resurrections. I am the resurrection. Now, if that happened, see, the worst thing we could do is put a cap on that and say, and it all ended when Jesus went up to heaven. Absolutely it didn't. And some of us even can believe that it kept going through the book of Acts because it's in the Bible and it seems pretty spectacular. But I want you to see this prayer that's prayed. That Christ that changed everything. That Christ that, that manifested the glory of God. Paul's prayer here is that Christ would dwell in your hearts. Not a little version of Christ. Not a portion of him, but Christ himself would dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love, you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints, and that's important, with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Listen to that, guys. How's God going to do these amazing things? How's God going to do more than you've ever asked or thought? How can he do it? It's according to the power that works within you where Christ is dwelling. According to that same power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I, I just can't process all of this. I can't process it because, I, and I'm trying, because I know here's the prayer that I would be able to process it. But you know my hang up? I always want to understand things up here first. Right? I, I want you to explain it to me so that my brain gets it. And then I can, I can teach it. Then I can learn it. Then I can walk in it. But what, 
The Bible says here is that God's got something for you to understand that surpasses your brain's ability to catch it. It's bigger than you have the capacity to understand fully with your mind. So he says, what I want you to do is to know something. Now, where do we know something? We all think we know stuff in our head. That's the first place we know. But the word know also has that connotation of not just knowing it up here, but experiencing it. Like I know my wife. I live with my wife. I, I, I know my wife not because I read 50 books on her, but because I've lived with her. I know I've experienced life with my wife, so I feel like I know her really well. He wants you to know the love of God, which goes past your ability to, to know and he says this, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Going back to John 1, Jesus came full. Why, why, why were dark places made glorious when he went there? Because he came full. Why did people say, this guy's not like any of our teachers. When he talks, there's authority to it. Because he came full of grace and truth. Why is it that when he put his foot on the other side of the sea, the evil spirits that dominated the region fell at his feet in surrender and submission? Because he came full of grace, truth, and full of the Spirit. And now, friends, we've received of that fullness. Now the prayer is that we would be filled up with the fullness of God. God can make Lloyd Minster glorious. What would a glorious Lloyd Minster look like? See, if you ask the world what a glorious Lloyd Minster would look like, first of all, they're like, that's a weird question. Why are you, why are you, why are you phrasing it that way, glorious? But if you just said, you know, if you tried to explain to them and said, what does that look like? They would look to the, you know, the parks, the monuments, the beautiful buildings. But guys, there's been empires that have had great buildings and great monuments and great everything, and they're all ruins now. There's no glory in that. That glory is fading. There is a glory that does not pass away. There's a glory that surpasses all of that. And it's the glory of God. And guys, what would make Lloyd Minster glorious is the presence of God. That people encounter, not just in a church service, but people encounter in unexpected places because that's where God sowed you. When we say Emmanuel, God with us, have you ever considered that now we are part of that Emmanuel? God sent us out so that God could be with them as well. Jesus said, let your light shine. He said, don't hide your light under a basket. Don't hide it under a bushel. Don't hide it under the bed. Put it on a lampstand so that it will shine and give light to all who are in the house. He says, you're the light of the world. You're supposed to give light to your house. Guys, I've said this before many times, but our house is Lloydminster. Your house is Macklin. Your house is your workplace. Your house may be your house. Your house is wherever the darkness is that the light's got to pierce it. That's the house that needs light. And I want you to not be afraid of a lampstand. So many times we're like, God, I don't want any special position. I don't want anybody to see me. Lord, I just want to be in the background. And while I understand the humility that comes with that prayer, sometimes we're fighting the very thing God's trying to do. Because if you are really humble, then you have to understand that he promises he will exalt the humble. He's not going to do it so you feel better about being humble. He's exalting because you can be trusted with that position. Because he's not going to exalt the proud. 
Because the proud are going to do it on their own. They'll fail. God opposes the proud, but he lifts up the humble. So if you're really humble, then you have to be okay with being lifted up at some point so that the world can see Jesus. You don't fight the, the lampstand. Maybe God gives you an opportunity. Just like, Let's just put it practically. Maybe at your Christmas party, which I'm sure is already over, but your work Christmas party, let's just be simple. Maybe somebody says, hey, you're a Christian, right? Why don't you say a prayer? Say a few words. And in that moment, in that moment, you have a choice whether you just do the religious thing and, and say some nice words or you're going to say, God, I don't know what to say, so you say what you want to say through me. And maybe in that moment, they experience something that they've never experienced before and they can't put their finger on it, but it's the presence of God. <sighs> We've got people that come to our church now. and our, our, One lady in particular that we love very much, when she, was, she lived in the neighborhood over here, and we were having a service, much like today. She's walking outside the church. She hears music and something just draws her. She walked in the back door, or walked in the front door in the back of the sanctuary and came in and she said, I experienced something I never experienced before. I didn't know what it was. I know now it's the presence of God, but at the time I didn't know what it was. I don't know how many times I've heard that. In Loon Lake, <laughs> our parking lot at the church is... Grand Central Station. Not because everybody's trying to get to church, but because it's a shortcut to the bar. <laughs> From the reserve to the bar, the best place to go is through, right through our parking lot. I was preaching one night. I was preaching one night. And these two guys come in and they are toasted. They are gone. They were headed to the bar. I didn't know how they could get any more drunk than they already were. It was like they had gone to the bar earlier. It's like they pre-gamed it. Like, like we're going to get drunk so we can go to the bar. I don't understand it, but that's what they were doing. And <laughs> they came in the church, and I, was, I, I saw them come in, and I had a nice little sermon prepared, and I, I heard the Spirit of God say, change it. Don't preach on that. Now, listen, if I had probably been listening to God earlier in the day, he might have told me then. But then this was the moment. I was like, okay. So I just preached on the prodigal son. And right in the middle of my sermon, preaching out about the prodigal son, right when I got to the end, uh, I didn't get to the part about the brother who was not, not going to come to the party. I just got to the part where the son ran into his father's arms. One of those drunk young guys, they were like 19, 20 years old, stood up and said, that's me. And so I took a page from Paul's book. See, Paul knew when to stop preaching. He stopped preaching when they were ready to be healed. There was a man in Lystra, and, 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 and the man couldn't walk. And he said, immediately, at some point, Paul stops preaching because he sees that this man has faith to be healed. So I, I logged that in my head, and I said, I could be a bullheaded preacher and just try to finish my sermon, or I could stop and seize this moment. Maybe this whole service was for those two guys. So we stopped. They came up. And we've seen this happen before, but it is the coolest thing. Did you know? that the Spirit of God can sober people up like this. This don't make any sense. They're slurring. They're going round and round in these weird circular... Have you ever argued with a drunk person? It's the worst thing. <laughs> I've had... Oh, my goodness, it's the worst thing. Because you will say the same thing 20 times. And it's just like, uh, I don't feel like doing this. But as I just began to explain the gospel to them as they stood up at the front, and the rest of the congregation just stretched their hands and prayed for them, 
Their eyes were open, their head cleared up, and they made sense. And they received Jesus right there. And they said, here's what happened. We were on our way to the bar. And we just felt like something kept pulling us into the building. And he, one of the ones said to the other, I think we're supposed to go in there. And the other one goes, I don't want to, but I think you're right. And they both just get <laughs> pulled into the church. So here's what I'm thinking. Last night, I came to Tia and I told her something. I had taken a shower and, you know, some of your best times with God are in the shower because it's when you finally leave your phone somewhere else. <sighs> At least that's me. I stayed in the shower longer than I should have because it turned into my own little prayer closet. And I left and I sat down with Tia after and I said, Tia, this next year, we have got to be a place and not just in this place, but all throughout where the presence of God is, is known. Yeah. I said, if we're going to be a church about anything, as cool, as, as nice as we want to be good greeters and as, as good as we want to do everything with excellence, I said, I just, I, the only thing I really care about is that people would, if they come into our church service, that they'd say, surely God is in this place. And then when they meet us out there, that they'd say, surely God is with them. That they'd get to meet Jesus and behold his glory and handle and touch the word of life. That God would be with us because he promised it. There's a lot of pull on a pastor, if I'm honest, to try this and try that, to grow whatever church or to do this. But I've got to tell you, the only thing, the only thing that matters the only thing that matters is that God is glorified. And he's not glorified by a slicker program. And he's not glorified by a better preacher. And he's not glorified by more skilled musicians. He's not glorified by better decorations. He is glorified when his presence is known, seen, experienced. And people are just vessels that can be used. And that's what I want in 2019. I was thinking about my dad's first church in Texarkana. I'm closing with this. I'm done. I was thinking about my dad's first church in Texarkana. Was it on the Texas side or the Arkansas side? Arkansas, Arkansas side. <clears throat> His first church was full of a bunch of hippies that got saved. It was during the Jesus People Movement. You know something cool about the Jesus People Movement? It sprung out of what seemed like the greatest age of rebellion that the world that America had seen in a long time it was it was not a good thing remember summer of love all that stuff like that hippie movement didn't start out as good it's drugs and sex and rock and roll but out of that out of that people were walking the beaches witnessing telling people about Jesus and those hippies experienced the presence of God and you know, they became some of the most fiery, righteous, Jesus-loving people when they came. In my dad's first church, he said there was some stuff we had to like tell them. He said because these weren't like churched people. So there was things like, you know, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't wear that, you shouldn't do that. Because it was distracting or whatever. But that was not a big deal. What was, what was really cool is you just had a bunch of people who hadn't, 
a blank slate who just had fallen in love with Jesus and there were miracles and there was a strong sense of God. We've got a friend in Edmonton, his church, um, their church just experienced great revival in the late 70s, early 80s. They were doing like hundreds of baptisms a week. To this day, I run into people all over Canada that know that church in Edmonton. It's People's Church in Edmonton. Michael Stonhouse, our brother here, our Anglican minister here in town, was baptized in that church. Filled with the Holy Spirit in that church. And it all happened on a bunch of hippies that got saved. And they found out that there's the Jesus people movement. They don't know what they're looking for, but they experienced something. This is what we've been chasing. This is why we were taking all those drugs. We were trying to find this, but we don't need the drugs anymore. This is what we've been looking for. And they're baptizing them every night. People didn't want to leave. I talked to Pastor Lori. He said, you know how I knew it was a move of God? He said, we were, I was preaching every night. I was baptizing every night. We had prayer meetings every night. And he said, I was never tired. It was so full of the Spirit of God. And I said, you know what? And, and many people have said this prophetically in the past year. We're primed. I think that was just a, a little foretrimmer, just a little foreshock of what God wants to do in our nation today. It's not a better philosophy. It's not an alternative lifestyle. It's not another way to God. It is God come in the flesh to dwell amongst us. Dwelling in flesh and bone. The spirit of God living in us. Being filled to his fullness. And what's the evidence of his fullness? What's the evidence of his fullness? One of the things that Ephesians points out, and it points out later, and John certainly points it out, is that people would know the love of God in a different way. When we love with a radical love that only could come from God, they'll meet Jesus. They'll have met Jesus. They will have beheld his glory and handled the word of life. Let it happen amongst us, amen. Thank God Jesus came and thank God he never left. Let's stand up today.